Hey guys, welcome to episode 112 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. At the top of the show, we just want you to know that we're going to be thanking all of our new Patreon supporters at the end of the episode. If you want to listen to more True Crime Couple, you can do so by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Couple. As of right now, we have 55 bonus episodes for you to listen to. We are also looking for more of those listener stories for our annual October episode. And that's where we read paranormal or true crime stories from our listeners. So if you have any, please send them to us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. All right. I think that's it. I'm really bad at pushing things. Oh, don't forget the merch. Oh, and yes, this is actually, thanks, John. No problem. (laughs) This, This is the perfect time to order some of the true crime couple merch we have. The fall is approaching. So those long sleeve tees or hoodies are perfect for the fall weather. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to put a link for that in the episode description, so that'll be easy to get to, and also for Patreon. Okay, so John, today I have one of your favorite things, a disappearance. Yes. Today we will be discussing the disappearance of Sage Smith, a 19-year-old African-American transgender woman. Her story has been marginalized by the American media for many reasons. And it's time that that changes. I've always kind of seen our podcast as giving voices to the voiceless, our victims. And in a very big way, I intend for us to do that in today's episode. If I were to tell you that a 19-year-old woman went missing from the main street of a college town, you would think that there would have been a massive manhunt a large-scale police investigation to help calm the nerves of a devastated family. And maybe even the FBI would have gotten involved. Many people would have come from all over to volunteer and help in a search for the missing woman. But that didn't happen for Sage Smith. No volunteers, no wide-scale search, no FBI, just that devastated family trying to find some answers on their own. In an article entitled Doubly Victimized, Reporting on Transgender Victims of Crime, published on GLAD.org, it states that transgender people, and particularly transgender women of color, are disproportionately affected by hate violence. Sadly, the tragedy of these events is often compounded by reporting that does not respect or even exploits and sensationalizes the victim's gender identity. Reporters telling the story of transgender victims of violent crimes can be given incorrect or incomplete information from police, from witnesses, or even from family and friends of the victim. However, it's critically important that journalists make the effort to report on each victim with dignity and respect. Disregarding the victim's gender identity and misgendering them in news reports adds insult to injury, compounding the tragedy by invalidating the person's lived reality. I believe that the story I'm about to tell is an important one for many reasons. We pride ourselves on always being respectful to the victims when we cover the crimes that are committed to them. Giving voices to the voiceless 
is something that's always been on the forefront of this podcast. So in order to respect the victim, I want to first address that we will be using her chosen name, Sage, throughout the episode and her chosen pronouns. And this is something, sadly, in doing the research for this case, I found that everything kind of stated in that GLAD article happened in the case of Sage Smith. There's articles that misgender her or take the word of family members who didn't fully accept her new gender identity. So we are going to work really hard to represent Sage the way she wanted to be represented. There is also a lot of details about her disappearance, potential subjects. Um, Not everything was reported to police, and police didn't really necessarily do a really intense job of looking into it. So we are going to address that in the podcast. However, I did find that later on in the investigation, there were two detectives who worked hard to understand who Sage was and question why her disappearance wasn't getting the attention that other disappearances from the area had gotten. And I also discovered that the pain of Sage's family is palpable. A family who is still determined to this day to get answers about what happened that night. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Charlottesville, Virginia may sound familiar to many Americans. Charlottesville, or Seaville, as many of the locals refer to it as, is rich in American history. And like all facets of American history, its story is a gilded one. With the shiny facade of it being home to two American presidents, Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe, and it being the location of the University of Virginia. However, the sinister underbelly of Charlottesville reveals that its motto, a great place to live for all of our citizens, is not necessarily as true as they want you to believe. Charlottesville was spared during the Civil War, thanks to their mayor's early surrender to Union troops. This meant that there was minimal damage to rebuild post-war, which economically helped the area, versus other parts of the southern United States, who, you could still make the strong argument, are still economically repairing themselves. Post-emancipation, the freed slaves from the area remained in Charlottesville and established communities within the city limits. The largest and most known of those communities was referred to as Vinegar Hill. The African-American population of the town had to endure the time period now referred to as the Jim Crow era South, where segregation was the answer to all public locations including restaurants, food stores, schools, and churches. Voting restrictions designed to target black voters ensured that no progress or change would ever be made, despite a larger black population than a white one. Biracial marriage was illegal, and coupling was sure to earn you a visit from the KKK, who were very active in Virginia during that time. 
lynching and cross burnings were commonplace in town. Places like Vinegar Hill always had to be on high alert. And when change came to the United States in the form of Brown versus Board of Education, the Charlottesville Board of Education chose to close their schools rather than integrate their student body. Resistant to change is an understatement when it comes to the 1950s and 60s in Charlottesville, Virginia. In 1965, the city council passed a law that stated unsanitary and unsafe properties could be taken over by a housing authority. Well, guess where those properties were? Vinegar Hill. And in a sweeping urban renewal project, the town of Charlottesville raised 130 homes, five black-owned businesses, and a church, all located in Vinegar Hill. Nothing was built to replace them for 10 years until there was a downtown mall, which put Charlottesville on the map. Many feel that this urban renewal project was an attempt to drive out the black population in Charlottesville, and its actual location is where Sage Smith's disappearance will occur. But it didn't drive out the black population. Instead, they went to other neighborhoods, like the Fifeville neighborhood, also located in downtown Charlottesville. But what you may know Charlottesville for was the national attention that was paid to the town in regards to a conflict that arose between locals over the Confederate symbols located within the community. Charlottesville was actually thrust into the middle of the political turbulence that faced the United States post the 2016 presidential election. When a rally was held to protest the changes made to a part of town. The park had been named Lee Park, after General Robert E. Lee. Now, if you were sleeping during your ninth grade U.S. history class, Lee led Confederate troops against the Union at some of the Civil War's bloodiest battles, including Antietam, Gettysburg, and although he surrendered to Grant at Appomattox, he was the most successful military leader for the Confederates. And listen, I could get deep into Robert E. Lee, but um, I know you're here for true crime and not history. But despite his ambivalence to the idea of slavery, he was a very proud Southerner. And he came from two very prominent Southern families. And he married the daughter of Martha Washington's son, George Washington's adopted son. So... Lee was someone who they didn't think was going to join the side of the Confederates. He had graduated second in his class from West Point, which is a northern military academy. So he was he was a big deal. And his pride in being a southerner is what led him to side with the Confederates. And his support of the South was a devastating blow to the Union. And he, along with Jefferson Davis, became a symbol of the American South that wanted to secede from the American Union, the Industrial North, because they wanted to keep slavery. So symbolically, men like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis are connected with the oppression of the white southern United States. It's pretty crazy. Yes. So Lee was seen as a symbol of oppression felt by the black population of the United States. 
And the city had aided in that oppression by building a park, naming it after General Robert E. Lee, and then putting a statue of him to commemorate his memory at the center. So in an attempt to make right some past wrongs, the city in 2017 agreed to remove the statue and rename the park Emancipation Park. The protest of this happening was held by a white supremacist group in August of 2017, actually several white supremacist groups together, and it was called Unite the Right Rally. After the very emotionally charged rally um, between protesters and counter-protesters, a white nationalist drove his car into a group of counter-protesters and killed one woman named Heather Hare and injured 19 others. The Washington Post reported that nowhere has the clash been more fraught than in Charlottesville, where parks have been renamed and then renamed again. Streets have been rechristened and stickers bearing white supremacist slogans go up as quickly as activists can remove them. So basically, Charlottesville became this kind of like battleground of like what was right. And even though the park was renamed Emancipation Park, that name, it was changed back to Lee Park. And then it was changed into a different name. So it was kind of like this city was facing so much turmoil amongst its community. And that was in 2017. That's pretty recent. Yeah, we remember it happening. Yeah. So since that event, the statues of Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea have all been removed from the town. The city council also voted to drop Thomas Jefferson's birthday as a city holiday. Charlottesville has done important work to change its narrative and the sinister aspects of its past. However, in 2012, Sage Smith was among the most marginalized group that existed in the United States, let alone Charlottesville, Virginia. She had been born Deshawed Smith to a broken home. Her father and mother had split up shortly after she was born. Her mother could not take care of her, so that job was given to Sage's paternal grandmother, Lolita Smith, who everyone referred to as Miss Cookie. Sage and her grandmother lived in an affordable housing complex that was called Garrett Square where her grandmother was a community leader. She served on the Tenants Association Board and Resident Patrol. Miss Cookie was a strong and beautiful role model for Sage, and their bond was unbreakable. During this time, Sage's mother and father were regular fixtures in her life. Her mother had two other children, two daughters, and left it up to Sage, whom she wanted to stay with and she chose to stay with her grandmother. Her father, Miss Cookie's son, Dean, had another family and had recently been released from prison, but always lived close to his mother and Sage. At the age of 12, Sage and her grandmother moved from the apartment that they had been living in because Miss Cookie didn't approve of the new raw iron fences that were put up. She felt like they had prison-like implications. So they moved to a house in Fifeville, a neighborhood in Charlottesville that was a community that was very similar to that of Vinegar Hill when it had existed. A lot of the people, when they raised the homes in Vinegar Hill, actually moved to Fifeville, 
increasing its population. So it now was kind of the largest African-American community that existed within Charlottesville. Can we quickly just say that Miss uh, Miss Cookie is like the, one of the best human beings ever? Anyone that fits that mold yes. should be praised for now until forever. Because to step up like that and take care of a child that is not your child, that's a big move. And to be very present in that child's life is a big deal. Yes. And to be very supportive. And Sage always felt like her grandmother. So was kudos like her best friend. to Miss Cookie. Yes. And she is a wonderful woman. And all the interviews she gives, she just seems so warm and loving. And when I said in the beginning, like the family's pain is palpable, it's it's her that I think of first and, and the hurt that exists of wanting to know what happened here. Yeah. So it was there in Fifeville that Sage met Shakira Washington. When the two met each other, that first they, they got into a physical altercation, which basically cleared both of their families' houses where people were running out trying to stop them from getting into a fight. <laughs> okay. Which is a good story of how you meet like your best friend. Oh, yeah. But the two formed a quick bond after this first meeting was kind of cleared up because they recognized a similar struggle within each other. Sage was still identifying as Deshaud at the time, but Shakira was further along in her transition. She had already spoke to her family and let them know that she was a transgender female, and she let her middle school teachers know that she wanted to be referred to through female pronouns. Whether or not this inspired Sage to begin her own journey in telling her family about her sexual orientation, we do not know. But shortly after moving to Fifeville, Sage chose to have an important conversation with her grandmother. She told her, Grandma, I'm gay. Miss Cookie, along with Sage's siblings and mother, had known from an early age that Sage was gay. However, they allowed her to choose the time when she wanted to speak to them about her sexual orientation. Miss Cookie still remembers the response that she gave. You aren't telling me anything I don't already know. And after she said this, the two embraced for a long time. During her high school years, her grandmother had been unable to care for her, due to some medical issues. However, while she was living with her mother, her mother was deemed unfit. So for a time, she had to live in foster care. This time was a difficult one for Sage. Although she had been accepted by all of those that mattered in her life, she was picked on relentlessly in school. On one occasion, Sage's mother recalled that she had tried out for the football team prior to her transition. And before she could play in her first game, the members of the team urinated on her jersey. So she couldn't take the field. That's horrible. You know what? Kids can be so cruel. And I think that sometimes there is a like misnomer out there that this generation of kids or maybe even future generations are more acceptable and understanding But I think one thing that will always remain is that children can be really cruel. And even though it might be more acceptable in society, it doesn't mean that that's something that happens 
within our own communities, if that makes any sense. Like, I feel like sometimes you see this false message of, oh, children are very accepting, but I think that starts at home. And sometimes if homes are sending the message that maybe something isn't right or something shouldn't be accepted, then that plays out in school and through bullying and through, I mean, we see it all the time. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I I mean, I would also say, I mean, like, obviously this is just a very small sample size of bullying because of her sexual orientation, but you have to understand like in a locker room environment like that, like I said, small sample size in a locker room like that, people that do those type of things kind of flock together and they look to find someone that they can do that to. And people that do it in a group, they find those that they find that person very quickly. Yeah, it's that mob mentality. You know, so like I've been in a lock in locker rooms where not to this extent, but, you know, things would happen. I remember one time they they put this one kid on my team in the locker and then locked like put the lock back on the door while he was inside. And they left him in there almost like I guess we all went out to practice and actually he was still in there. Um, so like, it's kind of messed up, like what happens in locker rooms and like, you know, the, the culture, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's because, you know, like lack of supervision and things like that. And, uh, it's just terrible. It's a heartbreaking story It is that she had to go through that, especially, um, wanting to do something new and fun and probably to meet people and get new friends. But unfortunately people are just not accepting. It's true. So despite the many challenges that stood in her way, being gay and black in a Southern school, living in poverty, in foster care, Sage still became the first person in her family to graduate high school, which is extremely admirable. Absolutely. She decided that the best path for her would be to get an apartment and begin taking cosmetology classes. Now, because Sage was formerly in foster care and had aged out of the system, she was a part of something called the Chaffee Foster Care Independent Program, which aims to help current and former foster care youths achieve self-sufficiency by making available payment vouchers that amount to $5,000 a year until the age of 21. So 30% of those funds can be used for housing. So she used 30% of those funds to help pay for an apartment for herself. The other remaining amount of money, so that's 70% of the 5000 has to be used towards secondary education. So that's how she was paying for cosmetology school and all of the supplies she needed to be in cosmetology school. So that that's a wonderful program that exists. Oh, it's good. I would just think that it would be it would be a little bit more, like more than five thousand dollars. Well, you would want it to be more than five thousand dollars, but I don't think that that exceeds the cost of like going to a community college. Uh, I see what you're saying. So it does yeah. limit them as to the choices that these um, children who have aged out of the foster care system like it limits their choices, but. I mean, at least it's, I guess you... It's something. It's something. It's a stepping stone, I guess. And the amount of money that the foundation has really is based on the amount of contributions that they receive at the same time. And state aid is at one flat level. Yeah. 
So Sage earned some extra money by practicing the skills she was learning at school. So like she cut people's hair, braided it, um, or she worked a job for minimum wage, but she was kind of in between jobs at times. She asked if her friends, Shakira Washington and Aubrey Carson, would like to move into the apartment with her. At this point, with her newly gained independence, Sage Smith had come out to members of her family as a transgender woman who had chosen the name of Sage. As evident through her interactions on her social media pages, it was clear that many members of her family were not as understanding as others were. Latasha, Sage's mother, and Miss Cookie, her grandmother, were understanding and accepting of Sage's new gender identity, as were her two sisters on her mother's side. It took her father some time to come around to the idea that his son was gay and then later that Sage identified as a woman. When Sage first revealed this information to her father, he took it hard and he said some very hurtful things which resulted in the two not speaking for some time. However, at the urging of one of his younger sons, and after he watched the Lifetime movie Prayers for Bobby, in which a woman's gay son commits suicide because of his mother's homophobia, he decided that he needed to change the way he was thinking. In an interview after Sage's disappearance, he said that he feared what he didn't know. And that is what generated the reaction that he first gave Sage. So he asked Sage to meet him. And he apologized to her for the hurtful things that he had said. And he stated that he wanted to build a relationship. Dean said that they slowly were able to build back a bond. And he became very proud of Sage. He said that she was one of the bravest people that he knew. And he said it got to the point where Sage would, you know, walk past the barber shop where he was hanging out and he would stop everything and bring her in and proudly say to everyone, this is my child. I want you to meet her, which I'm sure meant the world to Sage. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I mean, to to get acceptance from, you know, your father is a big deal. You have to admire the father's turnaround, you know, just to be able to you know, look at how he handled it at first, realize that what he said, the things that he said were horrible and try to turn it around and have a relationship with his daughter. That's, that's an amazing thing right there to be able to like say, Hey, Hey everyone, you know, meet my daughter, come say hi. That's a big deal. It is a big deal because there's a reason why black transgender women really have a difficult time because not only are they not accepted in the world, but they're not accepted within their own communities. So Dean Smith is someone who had been to prison and he was considered someone who was really kind of admired within the community. So for him to say, this is my daughter, Sage, that was his way of saying everyone is going to accept this. And, and it's, it's admirable and he's he's a very strong man for questioning the way that he has grown up but i think that that comes from also really respecting his family so his mother seems to be the most wonderful person on the planet 
And um, it was his son that even pushed him to say, like, Dad, you always tell us that before anything else in this world, we have to be comfortable with ourselves. So how come you're not letting Sage do that? And to take that to heart, I mean, it just shows what a great dad he is. Yeah, it's true. I mean, acceptance from our fathers is what we're all looking for, right? (laughs) I mean, I think everyone would love that. Yeah. So Sage, Shakira, and Aubrey were all transgender women. They enjoyed living together, sharing their life experiences, paths to self-discovery, their struggles, and their breakthroughs. But they were also three teenagers living together, out on their own for the first time. And this led to them going out and enjoying themselves often. Now, it has been alleged by some articles, some of which are very well sourced, but I will still use the word that this was all alleged because we don't know this to be necessarily 100% true. But there are some articles out there that state that the women would go to parties that catered to men that were what people referred to as on the down low. And that meant that these men were living straight lives. Sometimes they were single. Sometimes they were dating women. Sometimes they were married to women, might even have a family, but they were really gay or bisexual. And these parties were, of course, always very discreet. So it has been alleged that sometimes Sage and her friend group, which extended to another three women, would get paid by these men to perform sexual favors. And sometimes they would choose just to engage in sexual acts if they liked them. So they basically met men at these parties. And as you can imagine, these men were a very diverse group of people. They were all different races, religions. Some were poor, some were rich. They all had one thing in common, that they were living a lie. That is something that we can't overlook as being a really important motive in why Sage might have went missing. Shakira stated that all of the women looked out for each other. They recognized that hooking up with whoever they were hooking up with, for whatever reason they were doing it, could be dangerous for them. So they had to protect themselves and look out for each other. So the girls always told each other when they were going out to meet somebody, which I think is important um, in any friend group. Um, no matter what your sexual orientation or gender identity is, it's good to always let people know where you are. It's good to have a network. You know, it's like a safe, you know, it's just a safe thing to do. You know, that way everyone knows your whereabouts. It is. And I think they know as part of the transgender community that they are at high risk. And having a network of support is something that is essential to them, especially when they're going out to meet somebody. So the girls worked hard to find employment for minimum wage. Many jobs were apprehensive to hire a transgender woman. And when they did happen to find a job, they often suffered harassment in the workplace. They also suffered from it in the streets. There was an incident where Sage and Aubrey were walking home to their Harris Street apartment in North Downtown when slurs were yelled at them and a crowd of drunken men chased them home. But they also had great times. They were known to throw parties at their apartment that they called the Dollhouse Mansion because all the walls are painted a bright pink. 
and they would often go out to the one gay club that was located in Charlottesville. Everyone loved Sage there. She was the life of the party. She was always so beautiful, putting all of the skills that she learned in her cosmetology class to practice. She was a great dancer, and she always had a group of people surrounding her, hanging on her every word. But all of the fun that she was having would only last a short time for Sage, because in late November of that year, in 2012, that's when she disappeared. So to get to the events of the disappearance, I feel we have to first go back to the night of November 19th. I do want to mention that just 10 days prior to this party on the 19th, Sage brought her new identity to social media. So within her life and with her family, she expressed the fact that she now identified as Sage. Um, She finally put it up on social media. So on Facebook, she changed her gender to female and posted, I'm a girl now, respect it. The women were throwing a party in their apartment. It was a Monday night, so it's a little odd to have a party, but it was Shakira's birthday and they wanted to party on that day, no matter what day of the week it was. But sometime before 11 p.m., the party was interrupted. A woman came charging into their apartment. She wanted to fight one of the women's friends over a man. The two women took their fight outside, and the party migrated outside. Right At any age, audiences always seem to gather around a fight. Isn't that weird? It just always happens that way? There's always a crowd for any sort of like physical altercation. It's like we're in high school. Yeah, like all the, over again. The circle forms. <laughs> yeah, the circle. You know, to like box anybody out. I feel like right now at 31, I would do this. I know, thing. right? It's so fast with binoculars, maybe. But like, it's like you know, you got the wall of people. It's kind of like <laughs> like an MMA fighting cage. I. It's so weird, but it it did happens. <laughs> I guess it's. Part of human nature, right? Like gladiator games. It's a spectacle. Yeah. Both Sage and Shakira went outside to watch what was happening. When the crowd moved outside, they saw that cars were parked up and down the entire block. But this wasn't something that was unusual for a downtown street. But what was unusual was the groups of people that were exiting the cars. It seemed this woman had brought a lot of people to fight with her. So she was kind of planning something big and then the people leaving the party, most likely intoxicated, kind of played into this and it became like a big brawl. Oh, so it was like a group against one person. Well, that's what it became when all these people started piling out of the cars. Oh, yeah. Come on, play fair. Come on, this is that's not fair. One one v one. Let's go. <laughs> I, well, in the chaos, Sage ended up getting into a fight with a man, who would later be identified as Jamal Smith. Smith is of no relation to Sage. So once things turned crazy and group of groups of people were now fighting each other, someone called the police. The Charlottesville police arrived at the scene at eleven twenty p.m. Jamal Smith filed a report with the officer that Sage had damaged his car after their altercation. Because that had been the only filed report for the incident, the feud seemed to morph from being a problem between 
the party goer and the party crasher to Sage and Jamal. Once police left, Sage voiced her feelings to her roommate and best friend Shakira Washington. She told her that she had been upset that she hadn't backed her up in the fight. Upset about the whole event ruining her birthday and that Sage was now angry with her for not getting involved, Shakira called friends of hers from Norfolk, which she, whom she had grown up with. They agreed to come get her and drive her back to where they lived to get away for a while. So she left, and Sage had a parting message for her before she left the apartment to go get into her friend's car. It was, I hate you. So the two parted not on the best of terms. And I'm sure if Shakira knew that was the last time she would ever speak to her friend, that it would have went differently. Oh, I'm sure. I, mean, I feel like that's how it always kind of goes down, you know? You never know when the last time is, so it's it's sad that yeah I feel bad for her that that's the last way because I'm sure that the two women had such a strong bond for such a long time. I'm sure they loved each other. Yeah. Sage had stayed up late that night. When she woke up the next day, she called her father. Um, it was the anniversary of when he had gotten out of prison, so she congratulated him. And she also communicated with many other people. Later in the day, Sage woke up Aubrey Carson, who had been taking a nap on their couch, and told her that she was leaving to go meet up with a guy. According to Aubrey, when she woke up later at around 8 p.m., the apartment was dark. She thought it was strange that Sage was not around, so she called her. Her phone went straight to voicemail, meaning it was turned off. Aubrey knew that this was a problem. Sage was known to have her phone on her at all times. She was also known to always have her charger with her and that she would just charge her phone in the most like bizarre of circumstances just to make sure that her phone always had battery. So her phone in all the years she knew her had never been off. I mean, that is weird. I mean, if someone's if someone always goes out of their way to charge their phone and have their charger on them, it's weird for it to just be off or dead. Yes, exactly. So she thought that maybe Sage was still out with a man. So she didn't want to bother her too much. She just figured maybe she'd be back later that night. But the next morning, Aubrey awoke to find that Sage was not home. So at 9 a.m., she placed a call to Shakira, asking her what she should do. Shakira was alarmed to hear that Sage was not home and that her cell phone had been turned off. She told Aubrey that she should call Miss Cookie. Aubrey called Sage's grandmother, whose heart dropped when she heard the news. She told Aubrey that she should call the police. Aubrey called the Charlottesville Police Department and spoke to an officer. She reported that the officer took Sage's information. Aubrey gave Sage's birth name of Deshaud Smith gave the information that she was now um, Sage Smith and her birth date. The officer said that if Sage was still missing by the next day, that he would write a missing persons report. But as of now, they had to wait. Yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. I mean, but there is, I mean, it is true. There's really nothing you could do, I guess, because of the time frame. But, I, you know, it always sucks because, honestly, you lose so much time for investigation purposes, you know, 24 hours. Well, that means 
that now whatever happened, what's ever going on with Sage, now you're behind 24 hours now. Well, it's really 48 because... Yeah, right, 48. Because they did have to wait 48 hours, but Aubrey Carson did wait till the next day to see like, oh, maybe Sage, she might come home in the morning. Like maybe she's spending the night with somebody because, you know, upset about what happened the night before. So that 48 hours is so important. And it's so funny because I find that the protocols change from department to department. Sorry. um, Because... Sometimes we'll do cases and they start looking right away. And then sometimes, like here, they're saying, well, let's wait 48 hours. It is it is uh, odd, I feel, that it changes based on, like, where it's located or the department or whatever. You know, it's or what jurisdiction might fall under. I think it has to do with the resources that that department might have available. Charlottesville is a... It's very city-like, and it is a college town. So the amount of missing persons cases they might have for 19 to 22-year-olds is probably extensive. That if they looked into every single one of them right away, it would waste a lot of resources. So I understand it from that perspective. But when someone's really missing, it seems so integral. Yeah, and also, I mean, I know, isn't it... um... Like when it comes to children, I think, isn't it like right away or the first 24 hours? Yeah, they say the statistics drop dramatically in finding that child or finding that child alive. Which would make them jump on it if it was a child. Like faster, they would get onto the case On children's sooner. cases, they do. But here in this case, it's it's a woman who's living independently by herself. Right. So it's a little different than as if a child were to go missing. Right. I think I think that... The way it should be, and the reason why I'm bringing it up this way is because I think if if a person has very normal tendencies to do, you know, like their normal thing, like like for example, Sage always has a phone charger. She always has her phone on. It's always charged and ready to go in case of an emergency. Like if certain people have things that they do and they live by, codes that they live by, and all of a sudden, it changes. I feel like that should be taken into account. And maybe, just maybe, it could make the police it act a little weed faster. weed out what is really a missing person or someone just being out. Like, I see what you're saying. Like, if someone always shows up for work, but then they, like, no call, no show, that's, that's weird. That's out of character. Yeah, anything out of character should be used, you know, in order to maybe jumpstart an investigation. To make people look into it a little bit quicker. I think so. Because you lose out on valuable time. In a perfect world, John. In I know. A perfect world. I know. Detectives were sent out to investigate Sage's disappearance on Thanksgiving Day, November 22nd, 2012. They spoke with Sage's family, who was adamant that she would not have just left them. That Thanksgiving, Sage actually had special plans with them. She was going to stop in and see her grandmother and family on her father's side, and then she was heading over to her mother's house, where she was going to surprise her two younger sisters. Her younger sisters later confirmed this to detectives. They said that they knew Sage was coming over, but they were going to kind of go with the surprise, but they were so excited to see their sister. The family also stated, in addition to never missing a holiday with them, Sage would have never had her phone turned off, 
nor would she not have posted anything on social media for over 36 hours. Sage's roommates were also interviewed, as well as anyone who had seen Sage that day. In doing this, the police received a lot of information. First, they heard about the party and the fight that had taken place on November 19th. That was something that they already kind of knew about because they did have the police report that was filed by Jamal Smith. They looked into Jamal Smith and found that after he had filed that report, he tweeted something. He said, Ben disrespected to the point of no return. He probably just feels really aggravated because of all the events that took place that night. I think it shows that he definitely has some lingering feelings about what happened that night. However, after them looking into Jamal Smith like to this extent, there is no further information regarding a police investigation of Jamal Smith. He was never considered a suspect. Well, that's because, I mean, the fight wasn't, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't there to fight. It kind of just, I feel like he got kind of like tangled up in whatever transpired that night. Well, I think that if the night before someone disappears, they got into a fight with someone who was angry enough to file a police report and then tweet something like that, they should, they should be considered a suspect. I mean, I think, I think it deserves to further look into, because if you're going to tweet about it, that means you're still mad. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And people do some crazy things when they're mad. And based on the what he tweeted and the fact that he feels disrespected, I mean, there's implications that this could be a hate crime. Very well could be. I mean, I think it is, you know, but like I said, they should be following up a little bit more, I think, right now. Yeah. Well, they also learned that around 6.30 p.m., Sage had been seen walking on Main Street by her stepsister, Kiara Morgan who had been walking to a nearby bus stop. The two spoke only briefly because Sage had been on the phone with someone, a man. She had heard the person ask where Sage was, and she replied to them that she was about five minutes away. Kiara said that she didn't know who Sage had been on the phone with, and she didn't know where she was going. It was kind of like a brief oh, hi, hello, like, I ran into you on the street, but I'm on the phone with someone. So they said goodbye pretty quickly. Now, because Sage was a transgender woman, the police feared that she could have been the victim of a hate crime. They felt it was paramount to know who she was on the phone with and where she was headed that night. Because, remember, she had also told Aubrey Carson, I'm going to meet a guy. So they subpoenaed her phone records, computer, and social media accounts. However, this was going to take days because they would need to ask permission from the social media accounts to gain access. That's true. But I am glad that they're doing this because what it's going to show, it's going to show her last last location of the phone being on. Because obviously when you have a phone on, it pings off whatever towers nearby. So at least you can get somewhat of an idea of where she was when the phone was last on. And they also will be able to 
determine who she was on the phone with at that time. True. And what her text messages said. Ooh. Okay. Yes. So in the meantime, the police worked to complete a grid search um, of the surrounding area of which where Sage was last seen. So where she was last seen on Main Street by Kiara Morgan, they do a kind of a 10 block radius search in every direction. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah, not super extensive, though. I mean, it's not. I know it's an initial search, but I just want to put out there that that's the only search ever conducted. So it's a little frustrating. I mean, that is a little frustrating. I mean, I would think if you're going to listen, if you're going to go through the hassle, I don't want to, you know what? I don't even want to call it a hassle, but you know what I mean? Like you're going to, you're, you know, you're doing your due diligence as, uh, you know, as, you know, police personnel to search, right? You might, if it's only going to be one search that you do, at least make it an extensive one. Yeah. Make it cover a little bit longer. Now, I don't know, was that grid put out because of her last known location via the towers or just her last known whereabouts when she was seen? Now, I'm going to say right now, based on all the research that I did, there was no information about cell phone pinging. But I have to assume that there's going to be one tower within the entire like downtown area of Charlottesville. And if it didn't ping anywhere else, I'm assuming that the only place her phone pinged was within downtown or else it probably would have been reported somewhere or it's something that is being kept out of the media. So I don't have any further information when it comes to her cell phone location. So I'm assuming that it stayed within the vicinity of downtown and that's why a search wasn't conducted in any other place. I feel like when you're looking for someone in a densely populated area, like a downtown city, maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like that must be a little bit easier than if you were looking for someone, let's just say, in a 100-acre, you know, or 200-acre land with, you know, like a forest or something. Only because you you ha- everyone has cameras, um, there are CCTV cameras, I'm sure, in some places. You have stores that have cameras. You, you know, you have eyewitness testimony all over the place. I feel like it might be a little bit easier. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think that you're right in what you're saying. But we will get to the camera and the issues with cameras in the fact that it was 2012. And the eyewitness testimony, there's not... Unfortunately... There are only a few people that come out with their eyewitness testimony, and that might be because maybe people looked past Sage Smith while she was walking downtown. Yeah, I'm also going to say this, I think, too. I mean, once again, I could be jumping the gun a little bit in the story, but I think that if we know that Sage and her friends would go to these very exclusive, not want to say exclusive, discreet. but discreet parties... That's probably why, you know, it's harder to kind of pinpoint where she was. Well, I don't think she was going to one of those parties that night. She was she was planning to meet up with one individual. Could she have met that individual at one of those parties? There's a very strong possibility that we're going to get to when it comes to who she was meeting. Right. And depend, depending on who this person could possibly be. If he is going, let's say they met at a discreet party, you know, they, this could be their secret, you know, this person's secret, 
as to what, you know. You're saying that somebody would want to be keeping secret the fact that they're meeting. Like if someone has a double life, right? Yeah. That's going to be obviously secret. Yeah. So, you know. We're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere here. Yeah, I don't know why <laughs> that was so hard for me. I'm actually sick right now, guys. I'm John's I'm a li- in a little bit of a fog. I'm, I'm forcing uh, yeah. him to do this podcast right now. I am now. so sorry. I am like in the worst brain fro- fog. See, I'm doing a frog. Brain frog. Brain frog. <laughs> um, I am. It's unbelievable. So I apologize. What I'm trying to say here is that if someone's leading a double life, they're going to want to keep it secret. If somehow that was that's that secret was kind of exposed, that would give motive to why she went missing, which I think we kind of alluded to. Getting somewhere. Yeah. Which is why Charlottesville Police Department wanted access to her social media and her text messages because they wanted to know what these communicate. Also, her email account. Because they wanted to know who she was talking to and what she was talking about. So those are things that are going to be answered when access is granted. Yeah. And also brain frog. I think we're going to. Yeah. Don't. don't I, I'm, I'm don't traumatized by frogs. So yeah. like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> this is now the third episode in a row we've discussed a frog. Uh, I know. So, But this is better than the first time. So although the police were doing their job. It was it. Like, they weren't doing anything extra, if you know what I'm saying. There was no attempt to get the message out about Sage on a mass scale, to have a lot of people looking. There was no media circus. There was no conference. There was no questions being asked. Whereas if this was a, like, a 19-year-old white girl from the University of Virginia, it'd be a media circus. You're right. So Sage's family set out to do that all themselves. They worked their social media accounts to their advantage, making missing posts about Sage. And Sage's aunt, on her father's side, was actually able to get into Sage's computer by guessing her password. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. From there, they were able to access her messages and phone calls. The last number that had called Sage was a number that had not been saved in her list of contacts, and it had an area code from outside the Charlottesville area. Dean, Sage's father, called the number about a thousand times, he said, but no one ever picked up. He just received the message that the person he was trying to call could not receive calls at this time. Weird. Yes, but also phenomenal investigating skills. Oh, yeah. The police also hit a brick wall at this point in their investigation. It was odd that Sage went missing from such a heavily populated area, like you said, during such a high traffic time. I don't know if our um, listeners from other countries know that, well, uh, they don't have Thanksgiving in other countries, duh. Um, But the night before Thanksgiving is actually one of the busiest bar nights in America. So there were a lot of people out. The reason for this usually is because, like, people go back home. Everyone needs a good drink before spending time with family. So that's always the reason why it's a pretty big bar night. We call it Thanksgiving Eve, if anyone's curious. Yeah, it's like trying to numb yourself before the uh, your bad (laughs) dinner, maybe your bad, uh, I don't know. It depends on how crazy your family is. No, I mean, (laughs) we love our families. Yeah, of course. Of course. We numb ourselves during Thanksgiving as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So how 
she disappeared this night was kind of a mystery. Like you think more eyewitnesses would be coming forward. But unfortunately, like I discussed, um, Sage Smith wasn't treated the same way walking down a street as somebody else would be, which is unfortunate. But then again, speaks volumes at this marginalized group of black transgender women in the United States and how they have become the voiceless when it comes to their victimization. But what they wanted to pinpoint here was the location in which her sister, her stepsister said she saw her. They wanted to find like, okay, what is a five minute walk? And then they did like a kind of five minute radius from where the bus stop was. And they looked to kind of like talk to all of those businesses and see if they had cameras. I mean, that's a good step forward. It is. But in 2012, things were a little different than they are now. And of all the businesses they questioned, only a handful had cameras at the time. And of the businesses that had cameras, only half of them were working. See, once again, see, this is like the issue with like certain, I say, I don't want to say this is a 2012 issue. <clears throat> I would say it's more of just the type of city that it is at the current time of 2012. Because if this happened in New York City, every store would have a camera. Even if it was fuzzy as hell, you'd have a camera functioning at every single store location, every restaurant, every bar. Yeah. So it's just a matter of of like, you know. Uh, what do you, I don't know. Like it's well, just... it's not like a major city. Right. It's the only reason why it has a little bit larger of a population than any other kind of like smaller southern city is because there's a college. The University of Virginia is right there. And about three miles away from Charlottesville is Monticello. So that there's a lot of tourists that come. So like that is what feeds into the population and the tourism in Charlottesville, Virginia. So... You would expect there to have been more cameras, but there just weren't. And of all of the cameras that were working, they didn't catch anything of use. So like you said, you'd think it would be easier in a highly populated area to find cameras, to find witnesses. But unfortunately, it wasn't. It's pretty crazy. And just, you know, just for anyone that's never been in New York City, just right now, 2021, I could tell you right now, you can't even speed like a mile over the speed limit without getting a traffic camera ticket. So, you know. You can't speed. You, you can't, can't even drive. You no, can't do anything. But you can't even drive fast. There's so much traffic. That's what you think. This is why I don't drive with John in the city. <laughs> I actually have to drive whenever we go to like his mother or his father's house, like out in Long Island or, or when his mom lived in Queens. I had to drive because I cannot he, I can't be in the car while he's driving in the city. And I have to close my eyes when she drives. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, you That's know. where we clash. That is where we clash. <laughs> so the police were getting no results. So the family chose again to do their own investigation. And in a desperate attempt to get Sage back home, Dean posted the number that they had found that she had called right before her disappearance to his Facebook page. He asked if anyone knew this number, and if they did, please to contact him, even if they knew who this number used to be connected with. 
Within hours, he received a response. It was a transgender woman named Yami Ortiz. She had been friends with Sage and her roommates. She said that she knew the man whose number that was. His name was Eric McFadden. She said that Sage and McFadden had been seeing each other and that McFadden was living on the down low. He had a girlfriend and he lived with his girlfriend in a downtown apartment. I was on to something. You were. Dean asked Yami to get a picture of McFadden from his social media account and she did. So then Dean made another post and he posted McFadden's picture and said, if you know this guy, contact me. He was the last person who spoke to my child. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. He's ready to take this guy down. It seems like it. I mean, hey, good. Re- we have good reason here. So. Yeah. So Dean has stated that any information that he found out about McFadden through that post or any other means, he intends to keep to himself. Because he didn't trust the police. And he wanted to do an investigation of his own. Dean Smith's history with the police had not been a positive one. He had been stopped and frisked several times. And he had been incarcerated several times as well. So his distrust for the Charlottesville Police Department ran just as deep as his desperation to find Sage. That is why on November 24th, When the police receive a missing persons report from Eric McFadden, they have no clue at first that there's a connection between another disappearance they are investigating, the one of Sage Smith. Okay. So now Eric McFadden is being reported missing as well. Wait. Wait, wait, wait. So the guy that was last, Eric McFadden was the last guy to see Sage alive. Well, it was on the phone. Oh, I'm sorry. On a phone. Yes. Now they're both missing. Yes. On November 24th, a 24-year-old student at the University of Virginia named Esther Ayani called to report her boyfriend missing. She told him that she had not been able to reach him all day on the phone, and she was out of town for Thanksgiving. So she asked the Charlottesville police if they could do a wellness check on him at their apartment where you know they lived together downtown his name was eric mcfadden but remember only the smith family found out that eric mcfadden was the last phone call police didn't know this yet okay see that see that i understand the distrust so i understand why he didn't tell them that piece of information but see in this case in this one small thing here that should have been communicated to them. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, listen, it might have not changed anything, but I mean, if you know something that the police, do, you know, that they don't know. Right. And they're still actively searching, even if you don't like the job that they're doing, at least try to help them, assist them in any way that you know how. I mean, well, I don't know. They... Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard one. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe they might have known a little bit that McFadden had been seen around for a while. What we do know that Dean Smith was able to find out through his Facebook posting was like where Eric McFadden worked. He worked for like Sherman Williams, like paint company. Uh, He learned some other like details about him. So I think he just didn't he didn't want to share. Yeah. 
so right now I'm thinking a couple things. Okay. The first thing I'm thinking is, could it be the girlfriend? Oh. Because she would have a vested interest because if she found out that her boyfriend was seeing Sage, then she would have a motive a motive to take them both out. Mm-hmm. Um, or someone maybe that Eric knew f- caught him with Sage out in the street maybe or something like that and then both of them kind of disappeared or just it was a hate crime or well that was my last one or it was just a hate crime and once again they were both taken out and that's I don't know but I'm thinking it's it's either one of the I mean that's really all it could really be it could be someone random it could be the girlfriend or it can be maybe someone that they both knew right I think unknowingly because there's kind of two investigations happening here right now between the the family of Sage Smith and the police investigation. But Eric McFadden is being looked at as a suspect by the family when he may be a victim. That's true. Okay. So the police checked the apartment, but no one was there. They call Esther back and told her to wait things out. If she doesn't hear from him for another 24 hours, they'll write a formal report. Doesn't that sound familiar? Totally. But before that could happen, Yami Ortiz went to the police station. Remember, she's the one that told the Smith family about Eric McFadden. She had been concerned when she saw Dean Smith's post about Eric McFadden. She thought that it may lead to him getting hurt if he had been found by people that thought maybe he was involved in Sage's disappearance. So she explained that Sage and all of their friends place casual encounter ads on Craigslist. And that's how she had met McFadden. So this was kind of like the precursor to dating apps, like how you would meet people in your area. Sometimes people would post casual encounter ads on Craigslist. Very scary. And it's then, not then, safe. Listen, things like that produce things like the Craigslist killer. Very true. You know? Um, so that's how Eric McFadden met Sage through a casual encounters ad on Craigslist. Well, after police thanked her for her information, they realized they had something big on their hands. First, Sage's family had been able to determine the man on the phone that night had been McFadden. But this is something they didn't know yet. So that's kind of separate. But they also knew that Eric McFadden was now missing. So if there's a connection between Eric McFadden and Sage Smith and both are missing, the question now is, is he missing because he's the perpetrator? Or is he missing because he's another victim? The police chose to go public with this information. They put out posters asking for information on either person, Sage or McFadden. When they spoke with McFadden's girlfriend again, she said that she had not contacted him. Uh, She hadn't been in touch with him at all, but his work had called her and said that he hadn't been in work for three days. They asked her if they can search the apartment that she shared with McFadden to look for evidence to see if Sage had been there. And she allowed them to search the apartment. 
Okay. It doesn't seem like the actions of someone who's necessarily guilty. But we've seen we've seen it happen before. Oh, yeah. We've basically seen it all at this point. <laughs> so they didn't find anything of Sage's there. But what they did find was a receipt from CVS. And Esther said that she had not been to a CVS recently. The purchase had been made on the 22nd of November, two days following Sage's disappearance. So whatever had happened to Sage that night did not happen to McFadden if he was able to go to a CVS two days later. So now Eric McFadden becomes a suspect. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, that receipt kind of shows that... um that they, it did not happen at the same time. Right. So it's very possible that he could have killed Sage and then fled. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that fact is that he disappeared on the 22nd. It meant that he left right after Dean Smith made that post about him on Facebook. Right. Because he kind of had a whiff that if if Dean suspects me, then the police are going to suspect me as well. Right. Like people are looking for me now. Right. Now, had he left town because he had been outed or because he was involved in Sage's disappearance? Both are possibilities. Totally. So now investigators are looking for two missing people for two completely different reasons. They know that McFadden had gone to the CVS on the 22nd which was great news because they knew that the CVS would have surveillance footage. When they reviewed the footage, they were able to determine that it had been McFadden that visited the CVS. Next, they figure that if anyone will know more about the extent of Sage's relationship with McFadden, it would be her roommates. So both roommates stated that they knew that Sage had been talking to McFadden and had been seeing him. But he had a girlfriend. Shakira told them that she had met him briefly only once, but that the two really did not speak. So it was at that point that the phone records that they had subpoenaed from Sage and like all of her social media and all of that, they had come back. And her call history confirmed that McFadden had called Sage at 6.36 p.m. He had been the last person to talk to her. And her stepsister's timing had been correct because remember, she said she saw her around 630. And it makes sense that her timing was correct because she knew what time it was because she was waiting for a bus. McFadden and Sage also shared text messages. Prior to the phone call that was made at 636, he had been having a text conversation with Sage in which he asked her to meet him at the Amtrak station. After she agreed to meet him, his text became increasingly agitated. Where are you? He asked. Where are you again? Was sent a few minutes later. Then he said, I'm waiting five more minutes and then I'm leaving. And finally, at 627 p.m., he said, you stood me up. Bye. But then they were on the phone at 636 and Kiara heard him say to Sage, like, where are you? And then she said, I'll be there in five minutes. So Maybe they did meet up after that because the text seemed like they didn't meet up. But then we know about the phone call and that in the phone call, they were agreeing to meet up. So that was actually super important and amazing that 
Kiara overheard her stepsister saying that to him. It's really interesting, like, how this is all taking place. I mean, I, it's hard, though, to, like, figure out what's going on. Right. Because did, you know, if she went missing, did he, ki- you know, did he kill her? Like, you know, maybe, like, after those text messages or, you know, if they did indeed meet up, did it happen then after that? Right. I think the most important thing is that police need to speak with Eric McFadden because they believe he could clear up a lot of questions that they're having at this point. And on November 27th, Eric McFadden called the police department. When they asked him where he was, he said he left town, not because of the Facebook post or because of Sage, but because he always wanted to go to New York City. And he thought it would be the perfect time. It's very bizarre. I mean, that is bizarre. I mean, why would you're you... going to pick that time? Yeah. Like, why would you leave? I mean, if, especially like if you want to just clear your name, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, of course, you know, you got to have your lawyer present, this and that. But you would want to clear your name. Right. Well, he admitted to them that he had been in a sexual relationship with Sage And that they did have plans to meet up that night in front of the Amtrak station on Main Street. However, Sage never showed up. They asked him to come back to Virginia so they could talk to him, get all the facts and clear his name. Right. The police didn't want to scare him away. So they were definitely really nice to him and trying to say, let's clear your name. Let's figure out what's happening here. And he did say that he would return to Virginia. But unfortunately, he never showed up. I mean, yeah, he he obviously bounced. I I mean, I'm not trying to say this guy's a good guy, but you know what? In some ways, that was the smartest play. If he's guilty, if he's guilty of killing Sage, then he did the right move by not going back to Virginia, by not going there. Because if they get him to come back to Virginia, if they continue to press him, they can get him on something. They might be able to take it somewhere further than where it is right now. Him ditching and leaving, it gets him it gets him out of this. Well, John, on that day, November 27th, that's the last time police have ever spoke to Eric McFadden. They still do not know where he is. I mean, that is a little bizarre. Super bizarre. I mean, so was, so was his last known whereabouts then in New York then? They never checked to see. See, I find that crazy that you don't follow that up. Don't even issue a warrant for his arrest. So that if he does get stopped somewhere else, now nationally he's being searched for if there's a warrant. Yeah. (laughs) Like, how much do you not give a shit? Like, how much more obvious can you make it? I mean, I guess they did want to try to get him, you know, that way that he didn't flee. And that's probably why they didn't do any of that. You know, well, more comes out with Eric okay. McFadden. So I don't want to like get too into it. So let's keep going with our story here. Okay. Three days after McFadden was supposed to have been at the police station, detectives get a visit from his girlfriend. She said that McFadden had sent her an email explaining everything to her and describing the night that he had told police he had not been with Sage. He told his girlfriend that he had met with Sage that night and that as they were walking away from the Amtrak station, other people showed up 
and they kept saying that they wanted to talk to Sage. They were very aggressive. In his email, he said that Sage had many enemies and that he didn't want to get involved or be outed. So instead of staying behind and helping her, he walked away. Then after he revealed that he felt like he walked away, like he was kind of like trying to save face, felt like he walked away because he was mad at her because Sage had been blackmailing him about being gay and that he was making payments to her. So in the same email, he revealed that others could have caused her disappearance while still managing to keep himself on the suspect list, right? Because now police are curious, like, what did he mean by Sage had a lot of enemies? They knew about the fight and the tweet that Jamal Smith sent. They never really looked into it. Um, And they knew that now Eric McFadden has a motive because apparently he's been being blackmailed. But could there be more people out there with a motive? Well, yeah, there could be, but they're not investigating it. Okay, so let's get back to the show. So police move as quickly as they can on Eric McFadden. They get warrants to search his computer, his email account, and his social media and bank records, but they never get a warrant for his arrest. Once they are able to comb through it all, they find nothing. They find that, in fact, on the night of Sage's disappearance, he was browsing the internet from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m., and his activity and search history weren't suspicious. And it wasn't really like the actions of a guilty person who had just been involved in kidnapping and potential murder to just casually be on the internet and not be stressed about anything. Right. They're saying his behavior doesn't really like follow what would happen if someone committed murder. Another thing they do is they comb deeper through Sage's social media after reading that email that he sent to his girlfriend. And they find out that a lot of men that she had been dating were on the down low. There was one relationship in particular that was troublesome. A girlfriend of one of the men she had been seeing found the email exchange between her boyfriend and Sage. When this happened, the man blamed Sage. He said it was her fault and he got rude and disrespectful in his messages. It was reported by her friends that when they had seen each other out, the two got into a physical altercation. And while they like crossed paths downtown after the incident, Sage actually pressed charges against the man. So police thought, you know, they really had a lead when it came to him. But their hopes were quickly dashed when they learned that the man was incarcerated at the time of Sage's disappearance and currently. Okay, so it couldn't have been him. No. So then 12 days after Sage's disappearance, they get a hit on one of her credit cards. It had been used at a convenience store. When detectives visited the store, they were relieved to know that the store had a surveillance camera. When they check the tapes, they are shocked to find that it was Aubrey Carson, Sage's roommate, that had used the card. When they went to question her about using the card, she said that it was normal for them to all use the credit card when they needed food. 
And that was just kind of like how they operated as a like roommate situation. I mean, I think that this is something that's a little weird because she knows Sage is missing. So how the hell is a payment can be made on her credit card? I think she's kind of just taking advantage here. Is what it seems like. That is bizarre. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm sure times are, are rough, you know, especially since, I mean, you got to think it, it must be hard for everyone to survive. You know, that's probably why they're all roommates. And, and I get that. And everyone has to eat, you know, but like I, to take someone's credit card that's missing. I mean, that's strange. That's very bizarre. And although this is suspicious, there's zero evidence linking her to the disappearance. But police and Sage's family keep a very watchful eye on Aubrey after this credit card usage, particularly Sage's family. They don't really trust Aubrey 100%. Unfortunately, after that incident, the search for Sage got colder. That is until two months later in February of 2013. An eyewitness came forward. Her name was Monica Williams. And she said that she had known Sage for many years. And the night she went missing, she had spoken to her. What is helpful here is that Sage went missing the day before Thanksgiving. So that's a prominent marker in people's lives in which they remember. Usually like eyewitness testimony, people remembering things, it's not very reliable. But because of this event of Thanksgiving, People are more prone to remember things, right? Like you wouldn't know what you were doing on a random day in November, but you remember what you were doing the day before a holiday because an occasion happened that day. Yeah, there's significance. Right. Yeah. So she said that she had gone to the Wild Wings Cafe on Main Street and she ran into Sage at the bar and she talked to her while she was waiting for her food. She was getting takeout. So she had called her food in and she went to go pick it up at 7 p.m. And she knew that it was 7 p.m. because she remembers she arrived there right when they said her food would be ready. However, it wasn't ready. So she kind of hung back and talked to Sage while she was waiting for her food to be completed. So Sage told her that she was waiting for someone. Monica didn't want to pry, so she didn't ask who she was waiting for. And once she got her food, she said goodbye to Sage and left. But that's very interesting information because it increases the timeline that police and the family have. So they know that McFadden said, I'm leaving. You stood me up in a text at 527. But then at 636, she was on the phone with McFadden And her stepsister overheard her say, I'll be there in five minutes. But then at 7 p.m., she's seen at a bar waiting for someone. Interesting. So I'm going to throw potential scenarios at you. Okay. Okay. The first scenario is that McFadden did not leave after his text at 527. He waited for Sage And she was on her way to meet him when she ran into her stepsister. She met him. He killed her. And he could have killed her for a number of reasons. Trying to hide his secrets. Rage at having to keep his secrets. And Sage was the unfortunate target of his anger. Um, Potential blackmailing if that was the case. Uh, Maybe just a fight between the two of them. 
But if this is true, and he is the person who killed her, if we're presuming that she's dead, he would have to conceal her body, which would have been very difficult for him. The only place he had was located downtown, so he would have had to have carried her body throughout the streets of downtown, which that would have been something people reported. He also did not have a car. In fact, he did not even know how to drive. And then later that night, he casually browsed the internet. And this also meant, if that is the scenario, that Monica Williams was incorrect and she never saw Sage at 7 p.m. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Okay, so you don't like that one. No. McFadden, this is the second one. Okay. McFadden is angry that Sage didn't meet him when he asked her to. And she told him, just wait for me. And he said, no, I have something else to do. So they agreed to meet up later that night. So when she was on the phone with him and she said, oh, I'm five minutes away. Did he say, you know what? Forget it. Just meet me at the Wild Wings Cafe later. Could that have happened? Okay. But then we're still dealing with the fact that we don't know what he, the body would have been found because there was no way for him to get it out of downtown. Right, because he has no car and doesn't know how to drive. Right. And unless he has an accomplice. Unless he has an accomplice. But that's a slippery slope. Well, yeah. (laughs) It's, I don't know about that one either. Okay. Or what he said in the email was true. He met up with Sage at the cafe. So say he said, meet me later. I think that is one of the most likely scenarios is that he met up later with Sage and he was the person she was waiting for at the Wild Wing Cafe. See, that makes more sense to me. Right. Yeah. So the two met at the cafe and then they went for a walk. And what he said in the email really happened. They were approached by other people who had a problem with Sage. Could have been one of the men that she was seeing on the down low. His friends. A group of people from the fight the night before that were still mad about what happened. Like Jamal Smith, it could have been. Right. Or could it have been someone who just was looking to commit a hate crime? But they approached Sage and McFadden walked away and let whatever happen, happen. And he's still hiding to this day, either because he's scared whatever happened is going to get pinned on him. He participated or he's ashamed that he left. See, I think that might be a little bit more plausible, Mm -hmm. you know? If it was somebody that was just randomly targeting Sage, I find it a little hard to believe that that person would leave an eyewitness. Okay. So I don't think it's a random act. Like it's, I think it's a hate crime, but I don't think it is. You don't a think it's a random person? Hate crime. Yeah. Yes. So like, this could be someone who had like past beef or something with her, like an issue with her, with her. In the past. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. Or it could have been 
uh, due to that night with the fight and the car damage with, with the other gentleman. Um, because if they were in a group, maybe, you know, they would just handle their business with Sage and then say to, to Eric, you know, get out of here. You know, if you ever, you know, if you ever speak about this, you know, but then again, if you're going to go to such an extreme, you're not going to leave anyone. And then also, where is her body? That's true. But I but think about this. I'm but, I'm really but, throwing this. But a group you. of people really could have concealed the body differently than like Eric McFadden could have by himself. By himself, right? But think about this: if you were to carry out any act of violence that would lead to someone's death, are you gonna are you gonna be able to sleep at night knowing that you left a loose end? That not, they, the, not you know, me. You know what I you know what I mean? Like right. you're gonna, you're not gonna be able to sleep at night knowing that you. I mean, well, maybe you can sleep at night, but you wouldn't want a loose end. That can right. that can come back to get you. So if they're like walking down the street and all of a sudden they I get ganged up Eric on, I think Eric left. You think he left? Yeah, I think he left. He said that's what he told his girlfriend that he did. They started coming up on Sage, arguing with her, and he left. So I think they would leave Eric McFadden behind if he didn't know that they killed her. I see what you're saying. He couldn't identify. He didn't identify who they were. Well, and to this day, they can't find him. And I don't think they can't find him. Uh, we don't know what happened to him. And they also, he's not going to want to identify them because he doesn't want the same thing happening to him. That's true. This is a good one. I, you know, this is kind of complicated because we still don't know what happened to either of them. But there's so, like, and this is what's frustrating, is that we could know. We could know if a a warrant was put out for the arrest of Eric McFadden because we need to know more information from him. Jamal Smith needs to be looked into further. And all of the men that had contact with Sage and she was having a relationship with, they all like there needs to be further investigation into this because I think it is someone from that circle. Like you said, I don't think that it's really going to be a random hate crime. I think it is somebody who knew her. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm just going to throw this out here because I think it needs to be said. There's, I'm not even going to name the case. I, I don't, because I don't want to. It's too new. But there's a case right now that's going on where it's the same kind of circumstances where right now we have, you know, we had two, they were looking for two people that went missing they couldn't find the they couldn't find either of them they finally found the body of one but want the other person that they might think is the person of interest is completely Definitely missing the person of interest exactly completely missing he's he's not they can't find him so i draw comparison because even though in this new case that you know everything's still coming to light the, but at you know, least in that case they put a warrant out that's what i'm trying to get out him. here so i'm trying to that's what i was trying to get at so you have two people that were missing they searched national parks, acres upon acres upon acres of hard ter- hard terrain places to get to, to find a body, and they found it. Okay. Yeah. Now, on top of that, they are they are actively putting out you know um, you know anything that they can to try to locate this person, and yeah. they don't even know if he did it or not yet. Right, but John, there's a difference here. 
Exactly. And that's what I'm a black transgendered woman well, that's what that I'm trying to get at. Literally looked in a 10 block radius for. Well, right. And then it kind of goes back to what I said before. You would think that it would be easier to find in a city than in a national park. Right. That's all I'm saying. Well, I have one more scenario that I just want to throw out there because it does exist amongst okay. people who have theories about this case. That Aubrey Carson is somehow involved. Sage's family thinks that McFadden was not being completely honest about what happened that day or night. And Shakira Washington would later tell police that Aubrey um, started using Sage's makeup and wigs quickly after her disappearance. So she thought that was a little strange. And then another strange thing was the credit card usage. So um, the family thinks that the roommate's as well as Eric McFadden might know a little bit more than they're saying. Well, that's also a possibility. So unfortunately, there was no surveillance footage to review from the Wild Wing Cafe. So police would never know who met Sage there, if Monica's statements are true. The management at the restaurant stated that they remembered seeing a transgender woman that night, but they couldn't confirm for sure if it had been Sage. While the family of Sage Smith suffered with no answers, another teen went missing from the area. Hannah Graham. Graham was a British-American student studying at the University of Virginia when she went missing from a downtown mall, the former site of Vinegar Hill. The manhunt for her was the largest ever seen in the state of Virginia and the most expensive. Thousands of volunteers showed up to search for her every day. There was national media coverage every day for 36 days until her body was found. Sage's mother recalled in an interview that her heart broke for the family of Hannah Graham. But she wondered why an equally extensive search was not had for Sage. What made their lives different? And that's kind of like what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, it, it is true. I mean, look, I, I, I think that, like, because we've never been one on, on our show to, like, you know, get into the politics of it or, or you know, things like, you know, things of that mm-hmm. nature. But I do have to say it, it is as simple as justice is justice. It's just, it, you know, if you do for one, you do for all. It's yeah. just, it's, it's what is right. Like, it's not, you know, if someone goes missing or, you know, or, or someone's murdered, the same, the same um, process should be done equally. It should just right. be, it's the same way across the board, not, you know, different from case to case. Right. So it, I, I think that's like all I have to say ab- about that. And with, with the Hannah Graham case, I mean, at, at that point, the Charlottesville Police Department did ask for outside the help of outside agencies like the state police of Virginia, like the FBI, but no assistance was ever asked of the FBI by the Charlottesville police department in their search for Eric McFadden. Wouldn't that have been helpful? So yeah, it I w- mean, it would be. especially cause it's not just, 
it's not just Sage. It's also Eric, too. Whether or not, like, because we really don't know. We don't know what's going right. We don't we know still if don't he... Know if he was the one that killed uh killed her we don't know we have no clue so in in a sense you do have two missing people now or like you said he could be a loose end that was uh, later <laughs> taken care of right so like isn't that more of a reason to get more uh aid from maybe the state or something you have yeah. two missing people that you don't know where their bodies are you have no idea you technically you have two families that still have not have answers since this took place Right, since it's, 2012. So, so since 2012, I, I would think that that's more of a pressing matter that you have two people disappearing. Right. And no whereabouts whatsoever, no body, no nothing. So to me, that's why I think justice needs to be across the board equal. Well, yeah, in, in theory, that would be wonderful. In, in theory, right? But I, But it is something that always should be pointed out, even though it's the most obvious. But sometimes the most obvious things are always overlooked because it's easy to do that. Yeah. Well, in November of 2015, the Charlottesville Police Department made an announcement that they no longer thought Eric McFadden was a suspect. They did not believe he was guilty based on his digital footprint the night of the disappearance and his inability to dispose of a body because of his lack of transportation. The neighbors in his downtown apartment also did not see him bring anyone home that night, and I don't think that investigators think it would have been... Like, they don't think it's impossible that McFadden did this, but they think it would have been hard for him to have done this. Plus, they still do want to speak with him, so I think in 2015, them saying, okay, McFadden is no longer a suspect, I think they did that as a strategy to try and draw him out. But it didn't. Right. Because we don't know what happened to Eric McFadden. Months after this release is given, a witness comes forward and lets police know that they had seen Sage, Aubrey, and Shakira with Eric McFadden at a club the weekend before the disappearance. They were all sitting at a table together and they all seemed like they knew each other. Now, if this witness is telling the truth, that means that Sage's roommates aren't really saying everything they know about Eric McFadden, which is what the family feels as well. But I feel kind of, you know, almost like Sage's family does too. They might mistrust the police and be aggravated about the lack of attention, so they're not speaking to them or telling them everything, but they definitely did speak with McFadden more than they had originally told the police. Yeah. Shakira and Aubrey. Now, um, a lot of things have happened in the interim between the 2015 release and today in 2021. Um, when the whole hannah graham thing was happening the chief of police like gave interviews about how his heart was broken for the family of hannah graham and he was asked by an advocate for sage smith have you ever shed a tear for sage smith and he said no yeah he said no <laughs> so the uh Sage's family actually asked for a sit-down meeting with him, which was ignored for a while, but then the chief of police, he agreed to do it, 
And he basically said, like, the outcome's not going to be good. I don't know why you keep searching. Was basically the sentiment that he gave this family. Which is kind of, kind of bizarre. Because <laughs> you want to, tr- I think the goal is to try to keep hope alive, maybe. E- even if even if she is dead. And you want to know what's going on. And if you are trying to break that news to a family, like, most likely at this point, we don't think she's going to be alive. You you don't say it to them like that, especially after not looking. Because it seems as if Sage doesn't matter to the Charlottesville Police Department. And I don't want to say to every member of the Charlottesville Police Department, because um, from the interviews that I read and saw, there are a number of detectives that are working really hard on this case and do feel for the family and are working very hard for the family. They recognize that not the same attention has been shown to Sage as other missing people. And because of that, they're working very hard to help solve her case. So I don't want to extend that all to every member of the Charlottesville Police Department. But at this point, not only is Sage missing, but so is Eric McFadden. He could be a suspect, he could be a victim, or he could be someone with information. But how can two people just completely disappear? that know each other like they know each other it would be different if it was two people that did not know each other that disappeared in the same city right disappearances happen all the time i mean that is weird but it's i find it even more bizarre that it's two people that knew each other that were having a sexual relationship with each other both go missing yeah that's that's saw each other on that night that's weird allegedly we don't know allegedly but still, that, that, that is weird. Right. And there are many questions remaining. Why has a warrant never been issued for Eric McFadden? Why had police not looked further into Jamal Smith, who in 2013 tweeted, I can't stand an N-word that wants to be a woman. I want a man who's a man, not a man who's a woman. Okay. Hmm. So it's like... You need to look into all of these people who are potential suspects. But at a vigil had in what was Lee Park, Miss Cookie said, we want some closure. And this was in 2017, right before the events of uh, what happened in August of 2017. She said, we want some closure. What makes one life more valuable than another? That's how it makes our family feel, that we don't matter. Dean Smith spoke too. He said, I miss my child. I'll be sitting at home eating, and I stop eating and think, is my child eating? I don't sleep. Never cut my phone off. I haven't changed my number. I usually change it every couple of years. Sage was taken from me just as we were getting to know each other. I'll never truly know my child. A year later, in 2018, the very park where they stood, which would later be renamed Market Street Park following the tragedy in 2017, and a year later, that park was renamed Market Street Park following the tragedy that befell the park in August of 2017. I just want to end the podcast with a few questions. Will Charlottesville make it right? Will they move in the direction that they seem to be going 
and seek justice for Sage Smith. Will they make their motto, a great place to live for all of our citizens, become a reality for everyone in Charlottesville? Or will history repeat itself? Because isn't that what happened? In 1963, when the city raised Vinegar Hill in an urban development plan because they wanted to rid the town of those that were different, is that what they allowed to happen again in 2012? In the same place. It's kind of a really heavy case. It is. And I hate that there's no answers and that there's no closure, but it feels like there are answers at, at our fingertips. Like, like they're so close, but the work just has to be done. I feel like there's been cases that they had probably less to go on and they followed it up with something and they got the answers that they wanted. Whereas here there, there, there are places to go and look like there's leads there. It's not like there's nothing. So I agree with you. It is at the, at the fingertips unless we don't know something, but even then try to make it more known, I guess. I don't know. I've never even heard of this before. So like, well, yeah, you know, this, a lot of people this is haven't. a big deal. So it's kind of weird. I think that you're right. In in a lot of these cases where there's missing persons and it's kind of gone cold, it's because every stone had been overturned. Everything had been looked at. Everything has been exhausted. But I feel here in this case, not everything has been exhausted. Not at all. So we hope that, you know, we did do justice to this case. It was a really big one to take on. And, you know, I was a little nervous to do it because I wanted to be respectful and take it on in the correct way and make sure that everything that, you know, I said was right to be respectful to Sage and throughout the whole podcast. Um, so we really are looking forward to hear what you have to say. So again, you can always email us. You can write on Instagram, on Twitter, let us know what you thought about the episode and what you think could have happened how you feel about the the various scenarios that exist yeah but before we go i do want to thank all of our new patreon supporters so we just want to say thank you to kim moreland lorinda walker cheryl hatch kathleen meneman vivian garcia caitlin aruska Mindy Easterwood, Chelsea Weyerski, Mary Beth Kroll, Sarah Sarahan, Kayla, Nina Wabrick, Melissa Carrillo, Lori Penna, Claudine LaBelle, Angel Bonacara, Sam Beeb, Jessica DeCassi, Frank Hall, Ashley Wiggins, Holly Schromer, and Cheyenne Piersa. Thank you guys so much for donating to us on Patreon, and we hope you are enjoying all of the new bonus episodes. And if you ever need anything, let us know. All right, guys, until the next two weeks, we will see you later. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.